are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are indeed mighty and glorious and sovereign and good and faithful to your promise. Lord, nothing and no one in this world compares to you. Pray, Father, you would help us to see that tonight through your word. Father, use your word as a means of grace to help us see that the things and the desires of this world are passing away. But in Christ, we are part of a kingdom that can never be shaken. Father, may your spirit work in our hearts to help us love you more, love this world less. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are 18 chapters into this incredible book now, and I hope you've learned a lot. I feel like I've learned a ton. Uh, But I do wonder, if you've stuck in with us the whole time, how you would describe this book now, as opposed to when you just started studying it. If you would summarize Revelation in just a few words, what would you say? Would you say that this is a a confusing book, full of strange and, and weird images that no one really knows what they mean? Or would you say this is more of a a scary book full of judgment and wrath and terrible descriptions of what our future looks like? I know there was a time in my life where I would say both of those things. Sadly, many in the church think that way, and most outside the church definitely think that Revelation is just all mystery, all doom and gloom. But hopefully, if you've been following along with us, some of us in this room might say, well, Revelation is a profoundly encouraging book. Filled with wonderful pictures of our Lord, our risen Lord in all of his glory. And wonderful pictures of the church. Proving the church will overcome. When it seems in this world that the world might be overcoming the church at times. Maybe you would say it's a scripture saturated book. It's filled almost entirely with references to the Old Testament. Proving that God does keep his promises. I think after studying for so long, I'm convinced more than ever that the best tool to study Revelation is not a commentary. It's a really good concordance that traces out all these references to the Old Testament and sees where John is drawing these images from. Now, I'm sure there are lots of ways to describe Revelation. Maybe some of them were in your minds, too, that I didn't cover. But I wonder if one theme, subtle for most of what we covered, also stuck out to somebody. I wonder if anyone in this room would say Revelation is a songbook. Revelation is a hymnal, in a way, filled with praise to God 
for his work in creation, for his work in redemption, and for his work, of course, in judgment. I mean, have you noticed as we've gone through how much singing is in this book? The, the book that describes the end of all things is filled with songs. I mean, I checked just to make sure. Depending on how you split up the songs, there are 25 different songs in the book of Revelation. That's more songs than any other book in the Bible besides the songs, which is the hymn book of the Bible, right? That's just incredible to think of. And four of them are in this chapter alone. You might have noticed, even as I just read the first part, that the whole chapter has all these indentations. Those are all these songs. Most of the chapter is singing. Very few, very little of the chapter is really a commentary on those songs. Now, to understand why exactly there's so much singing in Revelation, we need to remember first where we are in the book of Revelation. So you remember last week, Jason began the sixth cycle of judgment that started in chapter 17 and will go all the way to the beginning of chapter 19. Now this cycle is not like the last few we covered. It's not like the trumpets or the seals or the bowls in one way, in the sense that it's not a full description of God's plan of salvation through judgment from the time of Christ's first coming to his second. No, this cycle It's kind of like an interpretive review, in a way. It really backs up chronologically to the sixth and seventh bowl judgment, but it zooms in thematically to the destruction of what we called Babylon last week. Really, it's kind of amazing that in the morning you we study and think about the scriptures that talk about the rise of Babel, and then tonight we talk more about the fall of Babel, the city of man or Babylon itself. The seventh seal in Revelation 19.16 says this, and this is really the summary of this whole cycle. God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's what these next couple chapters are about. And last week in 17, we got the description of Babylon as this worldly wicked prostitute and we saw her destruction really as, as she kind of implodes in a way and self-destructs. And then for two chapters, we get song after song responding to her fall. We get the song of destruction and the song of exhortation, a song, many songs of lament. We get a song of deliverance. And then in chapter 19, we have that great hallelujah chorus, the song of joy. Now back to my original question, Why? Why would there be so much singing right after the fall of Babylon? Well, it's actually a pretty simple answer. To our world, they sing laments because this is Babylon's funeral as well as theirs. They see in Babylon the loss of everything they valued in this world. But for the church, looking at the destruction of Babylon, they can't help but praise God as if they won the the war of all wars, because that's exactly what happened. They can't contain their excitement and their joy. In fact, this is a common practice for God's people. When, When God defeats their enemies, God's people often respond in song. We see that almost every time a city of man falls. Sodom and Tyre and Sidon and Rome, there are songs in Isaiah and Jeremiah, we'll read some of them today, that commemorate those victories. Or think back to the Red Sea. Do you remember when God wiped out Pharaoh 
and his army and all those chariots, how did God's people respond? They sung. Miriam led them as they praised God for this victory. So I want you to think of Revelation 18 and 19, really as gathering all these Old Testament songs of victory into one songbook for the end of the age. A songbook to commemorate the final fall of Babylon the Great. So we will deal with the first two songs tonight. Verses 1 through 3 is the song of destruction. And verses 4 through 8 in chapter 18 is the song of exhortation. And that really is our focus because there's an exhortation that is at the center of this whole chapter. In verse 4, which is just this. Come out of Babylon, my people. That's what God is telling us here. Flee Babylon before you are destroyed with her. So first, let's look at the song of destruction. Look back with me to verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Now, this is something we've seen a lot in Revelation. This is signaling a new vision, right? A new angel here. So we're turning our attention from Babylon, and that picture we got last chapter, to this new angel. And this angel, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And I love this. The angel of God, merely a messenger of God, comes down to the place where Babylon is glorified. Does it remind you this morning when God had to come down to see this glorious tower that man built? And already when this angel comes and is compared to Babylon, he has more authority than Babylon. And greater glory because his glory fills the entire earth. And then he speaks, verse 2. He calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is a shocking statement, but we probably don't realize that this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. This is a quote of Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9, which was referring to the historical kingdom of Babylon. So why would John... Go all the way back there. Is he referring backwards to the nation of Babylon? Well, he's trying to show that even that Babylon was just a shadow of the greater Babylon, the city of man to come. Really, it's what Jason talked about last week. We learned Babylon isn't just one nation, is it? It's not one kingdom. Babylon in the Bible is this composite picture of the city of men and its many manifestations. I mean, we might call it in the Old Testament, it could be Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah or Nineveh or Babel or even Jerusalem at times, sadly, has many characteristics of Babylon. In our modern world, we might say, well, China is Babylon or Russia is Babylon or Great Britain or even, yes, the United States of America has a lot of characteristics of this Babylon. Because any nation, any power, any authority that sets themselves against Christ And his church is Babylon. Babylon is the anti-church. That's why she's called the prostitute, by the way. Prostitute is the exact opposite picture of the spotless, pure bride of Christ that we've been getting glimpses of all the way through, and we'll get a very clear glimpse of in the next few chapters. I love the way that Kevin DeYoung summarizes who Babylon is. He says this, She is corrupt society, fallen culture, Decadent civilization, the picture of idolatry and immorality, in a word, 
Babylon is worldliness. And worldliness is whatever makes wickedness look normal and righteousness look strange. I really like that definition because it summarizes so much of what John is saying and it opens our eyes to see, wow, this worldliness, this Babylon is all around us. Even there's a taste of it in our own heart, isn't there? A desire for it in many ways. So now John gives us a picture of the destruction. This is a song of destruction of the Babylon uh, right now. So we see the picture at the end of verse 2. After he pronounces that Babylon has fallen, the angel says this. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. I don't even know if we realize what a shock this is to our system. Even just think in terms of America and how powerful and huge we think there's no way that America would ever be reduced to this. After this incredible description of of Babylon's greatness and really this invincible picture of who that nation is in all of its glory, what do we find out? She's reduced to nothing. Nothing but death and unclean beasts. Really a fulfillment of Jeremiah 51.37, which says, Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without any inhabitant. And all those Old Testament songs of destructions in the, in the prophets have similar language. You can go read these later. Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51. There's so many of these songs describing the destruction of Babylon. Now you might think, well, this sounds weird to me. What in the world is a haunt of jackals or unclean spirits? It's hard to even put that into my mind. But I'll bet we can imagine it even more than we realize. We live in a world that describes the end of the world often, right? With dystopian movies and all these things. If you were to picture a wasteland, a ghost town, maybe, you know, Hunger Games, Matrix, or whatever your movie of choice might be that gets that picture in your head, that's similar to what's happening here. Or maybe you see after an atomic bomb explodes and you just see nothing alive for miles. That's the picture here. And look, I'm not, I'm not trying to say the end of the world will be a bomb or, you know, deadly robots or whatever. It's not the point. But the desolation here is what John is after. In fact, kids, I thought of this this week. If you've ever seen The Lion King, hopefully this isn't too outdated. But if you've ever seen The Lion King, think of that elephant graveyard, right? The place where there's no light and all those bones. That's the picture here. Complete and utter destruction. In the end, man in all of his glory will be reduced to nothing. As if there was nothing there in the first place. Really, it's a fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Babylon will be reduced to dust one day. And why? Why is her judgment so severe? Well, it's because Babylon has led the whole world into her sin. Look at verse 3. For all nations, slow down and read that carefully. All nations. Um, what, America? Yes. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
Yes, this speaks of literal sexual immorality, but also every time this is brought up, there's this spiritual adultery here that all the nations are indulging with. And the kings in the middle of verse 3, the kings, the leaders of those nations, the earth have committed immorality with her. The image there is that they have joined in the prostitute's bed. That's the picture here. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. You see, Babylon wasn't content to just sin alone. She lures the world in by this intoxicating wine, that golden cup that Jason talked about last week, filled with depravity and idolatry and spiritual adultery. The world longs for this. I don't know if you think about it, but maybe you wonder why. What, what is at the heart of this? Why would the world want this? Well, you see what's at the heart of her corrupting influence, don't you? At the very end of verse 3, look at the merchant section again. It says, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This is one of the many allures of Babylon. The way that she lures us in is through money and power and prosperity and all the security and comfort that comes with that. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I need to clarify. It's not money itself that's the problem. Prosperity is not evil in and of itself. God is the one who grants and blesses people with prosperity and money and influence. And I'm so thankful for the way that God has used many people who are wealthy throughout the scriptures and even in our own church. So many of you have been blessed by God and you turn around and become a blessing to so many. That's a great thing. It's not the possession of money that's being called out here. It's the pursuit of it. It's the worship of prosperity. Really the idolatry of prosperity. As 1 Timothy says, money is not the problem. It's the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That's the goal of Babylon. And she draws us in through this materialism and and worldliness. Like Chad said this morning, I will give you all the gifts of God without him. And she's constantly whispering to us, each and every one of us, you can have just a little bit more. Kids, that's really easy to hear that right now. As Christmas approaching, we can think, oh, if I had one more video game, one more toy or outfit or teenagers, if I just had this phone or this car, then I will be so happy. Or if I just could get a little bit more attention from this boy or this girl, or a little bit more attention from my friends online, no matter what I have to do to do it, then I'll, then I'll be happy. Or a little bit more recognition for what I can do on the athletic field. That will satisfy me. It's all these whispers and these lies of Babylon. Now, adults, Babylon whispers to us in the same way, doesn't she? But often, it's with a financial bent to it in the sense of, you know, if I could have just a little bit more money, I could have a bigger home. 
We can even sanctify those desires and say, well, then I'll be able to entertain more people. My kids will be able to go to better schools. I'll be able to take them on better vacations and focus on the family, right? That's what really matters in the end anyway. We think this way, even if it means we have to cut corners at work or treat people in sinful ways or regularly miss corporate worship or minimize our time in the word or hearing the word preached. We think, you know what, it might still be worth it because in the end, I'll be comfortable. I'll be secure. I'll be happy. And that's the allure of Babylon. It's not that we want gifts that God gives us. Those aren't evil in itself. It's we want the gifts for our own glory. And really, these are the same lies we heard in the garden, isn't it? God's saying he's not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best interests at mind. That's what Satan's saying to us there. If you could just have a little bit more, then I'll give it to you. And it won't cost you near as much as what God will make it cost you. So how do we respond to these lies? How do we respond to this allure of Babylon, even when we know she's going to be destroyed? Well, that's when we get the song of exhortation. And that main exhortation is right there in verse 4. Read that with me, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Now, this is definitely not the first time that God has given this kind of command to his people. This is all over the scriptures, whenever we have the city of man. Think back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We haven't gotten there in Genesis yet, Genesis 19, but Sodom and Gomorrah was a lot like Babylon, filled with all manners of depravity and idolatry and sexual immorality and lavish living. And what does God say to Lot? He sends an angel and tells Lot in Genesis 19:15, "Get up. Flee, run, don't even look back. Take your wife and your daughters who are here lest you be swept away in her punishment." And then the shocking thing is in verse 16 of chapter 19 of Genesis. It says, "But Lot lingered." He knew he would be destroyed along with the city. But the allure of Babylon was so great, had such a grip on his heart, he didn't want to leave. Then the same thing happens to his wife, right? When the, the angel pulls them out of Sodom and Gomorrah and then it's destroyed, what does the wife do? She looks back, not just out of curiosity, but out of longing. She wants that worldliness. She wants the gifts of God without God. And she is turned to salt. Similar language is used in Isaiah and Jeremiah when God calls his people home from exile. Isaiah 52, 11, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And in Jeremiah, he warns the people as well in Jeremiah 51, 45, go out of the midst of her, my people, let anyone save his life from fierce anger of the Lord. You know what? This isn't just an Old Testament command. Jesus piggybacks on this in Luke 17, when he's talking about the kingdom to come and he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember what she really wanted. And then he follows it with this command in Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, seeks to give their life to Babylon and all the world has to offer, will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is a command all the way through scripture. And I hope we don't misunderstand this command to flee in the Bible because Christians have, have missed this in so many ways. This is not a command merely to relocate. It's not a command to leave the world behind, to, to move to some other promised land, Texas or Idaho and build a bunker or whatever you want to do. It's not the command here, right? That's not the purpose of this. We're called to be in the world, Jesus prays, but not of the world. Jesus says that in John 17. This is also not a call to asceticism in the sense to escape not just the physical world, but all the pleasures of the world, to run from that, to become a monk and just leave all those things behind. That's not what he's calling us to flee here. Really, brothers and sisters, please understand this. This is a gospel call of repentance. This is a call to faith in Christ. It's not to abandon the world but to abandon worldliness. It's really a call in the context of all these other quotations to come home. Leave Sodom. Leave slavery in Egypt and come to the promised land. Come out of exile, my people, and return to God. Return to his kingdom. Abandon the sinking ship of this world and step aboard the ark of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the picture. Walk away from the sin. Walk away from the destruction. Walk away from Babylon to Christ. Because he has freed us from the slavery that Babylon wants to put us in. The slavery to sin, Satan, and death. He has freed us from her temptations by defeating her for us living in our place, obeying the, the law and fighting off those temptations and going perfectly to the cross to pay for our sins by taking the wrath of God and raising from the dead so that we won't be destroyed with Babylon, so that we can have newness of life, eternal life in God. This is a call out of Babylon to Christ, to leave worldliness and all the world has to offer behind and to live now as sojourners in this world, in exile in a way, but on our way home to the promised land, headed home to our Lord. Now we'll look at many ways of how we obey that more next week. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. But I want to point out first, John gives us a very big reason why we should obey this command. And the reason is simply this, because God's judgment is near. Look at verse 4. Come, out of her, my people. Why? Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. You know, it's so tempting to believe that giving in to Babylon's lie, turning back to Sodom and Gomorrah like Lot's wife, is just a minor misstep of faith. Just a, a momentary lapse in judgment. This clearly shows us it's harlotry. It's blasphemy. It's spiritual adultery and idolatry. It's taking part in her sins. It's not overcoming the world like we're called to in the book of Revelation. It's being overcome by the world. 
And those who give in to her lies and give in to her lust will be destroyed with her. They will share in her plagues, it says. And why is that? Because the holy, righteous, eternal judge remembers. He doesn't miss a thing. As we've been saying every single week, he is slow to anger. He's been calling us to repentance for a long time. Even in this passage, this fall hasn't been finished yet. But eventually he will get angry. And this is what it looks like when perfect justice comes. Look at verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Now, please don't get thrown off by these parallel statements. There are actually three parallel statements in poetic language that mean the same thing. You might read that and go, oh, wait a minute, double? Did God lose control in his anger and then accidentally in his anger give Babylon double what she deserves? That's not the picture that's that's happening here. The idea of double here is this idea of, of like copy or duplicate. Almost like God saying, look, copy her destruction." Copy the the consequences of her sins and the devastation she brought and give it back to her. Treat her like she treated and manipulated the world. Bring it back to complete justice. And how do we know that's what John means? Because he illustrates it in the next verse. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. In other words, may her pain and suffering in judgment be just as lavish as the lifestyle and the idolatry that she lived. Since in her heart, she says, now listen to these boasts. These are incredible boasts from Babylon. And I hope you can soften your heart to hear these boasts growing even in your own heart at times. Listen to what she says. This is the reason why she deserves the judgment. I sit as a queen. I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots. I'm the one that gets to decide good and evil for myself. Thank you very much. It's the same temptation in the garden, isn't it? I sit as a queen and I am no widow. I'm not weak. I'm not helpless. I am not dependent on anyone. In fact, I can get anything I want from anyone I want because I have the whole world under my spell. These are the boasts of Babylon. And look at the last one. And mourning I shall never see. Sickness, death, sadness, you can't touch me. I'm basically invincible. You see what her boast is, right? I am God. I'm sovereign. I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. I'm invincible. I'm independent. And we know how God deals with false gods, with plagues. Verse 8, for this reason, her plague will come in a single day. Suddenly, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. I hope you can see how each of the plagues matches Babylon's boast. When she says, I'm the sovereign queen, I'm living in luxury. And how is she destroyed? Famine. 
Not usually a problem. Scarcity is not a problem for kings and queens, is it? But she's destroyed with famine. I'm mightier than any widow. But you're going to face the mighty God and his fires of judgment. I'm the one who will never, ever mourn. And you're going to face death in one day. In all your glory, you think you're untouchable, but you will be taken out in one instant. See, God's message is loud and clear. Babylon's destruction will be sudden and severe and just. God will never be overcome by his enemies. So brothers and sisters, our only hope from the wrath of God to come is to take refuge in the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, don't test the Lord. Don't play games with Babylon and worldliness. Don't entertain that even for a second. Flee Babylon. Come out of her and come to Christ. I know it's a struggle. It's a struggle for myself. It's a struggle for all of us in different ways. Babylon pulls at our heartstrings every single day. But the God who calls us out is also the God who keeps us to the end. And this is the message of hope we have, that we long for, that we trust in, and that should be on our lips to the ends of the earth. So trust him and sing with all the saints, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even for the confrontation and the exhortation here that can feel heavy on our hearts at times. Lord, help us to be humbled by it. Help us to see your goodness and your kindness to us in calling us out of Babylon. Lord, guard us from believing Babylon's lies. Give us the grace needed to trust you and to walk in faithfulness and holiness and repentance together as your people. And may we preach the gospel so that others may also trust you and abandon the sinking ship of Babylon. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.